0: if literally 80% of London market reinsurance business was controlled by two brokers, I think we'll be all right for the next few years because the market is hardening, the, things are um, getting a bit better, it's coming more in the underwriters favor, um, but then the next soft cycle, um, they'd have a huge amount of control.
1: Welcome to The Voice of Insurance, I'm Mark Gagan. The voice you just heard was that of John Parry, Chief Underwriting Officer of QBE Re. John is a highly experienced and well-regarded underwriter. He knows the insurance and reinsurance markets inside and out. The great thing for me is he's happy to explain his thinking to us lesser mortals in the press. I've been enjoying my interviews with him for well over a decade. If you don't know him already, I think you'll like him, and you'll learn a lot from him. He's also quite a rare character in that he spent the first half of his career as a broker, This gives him a really well-rounded perspective on how insurance and reinsurance works and what clients really want from their underwriters. He's always polite and good-humored, but he's firm and has strong convictions, as you'll have guessed from the beginning of this podcast. He doesn't pull any punches. I suppose you can't be a top underwriter over such a long period without having a bit of steel in your nature. Anyway, John's handing over the QBE underwriting mantle at the beginning of April and plans to retire next year. This interview gives a career-long perspective on what is happening in reinsurance today and puts it into proper historical context. Now, a quick note, uh, if you don't know the English education system, O levels are national exams you take when you're 16 and A levels are the ones you do at 18 and are used for deciding university entrance. One last thing, I recorded this interview about 10 minutes before the Aon Willis merger news broke, but I I didn't rush back to re-record anything, because since that secret was already out this time last year, it was already a good idea to be talking about what such a deal might mean, even if only in a hypothetical sense. I think you'll see what I mean when the time comes, so enjoy the podcast. Before we get started, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. Look, John, why don't you tell me um, how you got into insurance uh, and then reinsurance
0: and uh, how your career developed from there? Well, I was—I uh, did very well in my common entrance exams. This is going way back before even. Uh, and I skipped a year at school. So,
1: so that's, that's exams that get you into boarding school, isn't it? Yes, or, yes 13, yeah,
0: 13. You take them at 13. Yep. So because I skipped a year, I ended up doing my O levels a year early and my A levels when I'd literally just turned um, 17. Uh, And I got my A-levels, but not particularly good grades. Um, My father wanted me to go to university. I'd had enough of studying, didn't really want to. um, So we compromised on a year off. In that time, I did seven months of labouring, which actually I thoroughly enjoyed and earned good money and bought myself uh, a second-hand uh, Ford Escort. Uh, And then the beginning of the year after, I had it out with Dad and I said i really don't want to go to university i just want to start working Uh, i got myself an interview with a stockbroker he was in the business and managed to get me an interview with an underwriting company and also a broking company and i got offered the job at the broking company so by complete coincidence on the 13th of april 1981 i started in reinsurance at a company called wigan poland do you remember them no,
1: I don't. I mean, what, what, I suppose the easiest way of describing those is what do they end up becoming?
0: Uh, well, I was going to say Sedgwick stroke E.W. Payne, but obviously now Marsh stroke so Guy Carpenter. yeah.
1: Yeah, And then how, how long were you there at the broker?
0: I was at Wigan Poland until 1985, and when we got bought out by Sedgwick's... Uh, Myself and three others started up a non marine reinsurance broking team at a company called Steel Barrel Jones, who are basically a, a marine reinsurer, and we set up a non marine reinsurance division.
1: And then I remember uh, that's so Steel World Jones, and then got swiftly abbreviated to SBJ. Yes, that's and right. And then that merged with Regis Low as I, that was a very yes. long time ago. Yes, yes. It was yes. probably about early 90s.
0: And but I think that's that when was I first mi- came across them. I think that was near the end of them. So
1: there was, was certainly, that was a, I knew that there was a chap called David Howden who worked there, and uh, he used to do DNO and yes, uh, yeah, we used yeah. to work with him, and he used to wholesale yeah. the DNO for, for yeah, the yeah. company I was working for. But uh,
0: I, I left, I got offered a job, in I mean, my years at Steelbar Jones I thoroughly enjoyed, because um, we did a bit of everything. We did a bit of property, a bit of personal accident, a bit of bloodstock, a bit of satellite. You know, it's really quite exciting doing all these different classes and, and learning an awful lot. But in 1989, I um, got offered a job by Alexander Howden, and I think most people will know that one did become Aon, uh, and then I ended up there for uh, 11 years until 2000. Uh, and one day in 2000, I went to see a, a major leader of my business to get a new Risk excess program quoted. It's a chap called Peter Grove, who worked at the Limit Syndicate, which at the time were being purchased by QBE. And Peter said to me, um, I'm glad you've come in. I want to talk to you. And he did have quite a scary reputation at the box. Um, And I was worried. I thought, oh, God, has one of my clients given him a big loss or something? I'm going to get dragged over the coals here. Uh, And he explained that several people from the syndicate uh, were leaving. uh, And he thought I'd make a a good underwriter. And there and then at the box, he, he offered me a job. And it's one of the very few times I've been completely lost for words. That's pretty amazing.
1: As a broker, being lost for words, yeah, that is that's, that's, <laughs> that's, 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 that's a great failing. You had to leave the profession immediately. Clearly. <laughs> so, what's the transition from because uh, I've, I've only ever been a broker and then transitioned to become a journalist. So, so that's that's one. That's not, that's not much help. But uh, so, what about what, what's that
0: transition to, from from swapping sides of the box, uh, you know, to become an underwriter? Well, I always thought to be a decent broker, you really need to understand the business inside out know the background to it know the client uh and as long as you do that um you know underwriting perspective as long as you understand it understand the client the reason um, they're buying the cover um you can you can take the same mentality you're just coming from a different side
1: so so you were one of those brokers that was always sort of better underwriter than the underwriter anyway you know and a bit frustrating if you're sending business into london and, and they wouldn't even show it to the underwriter because uh, they seem to already know that it wouldn't be placeable or doable.
0: You want, you're not I'll, one of those. Ones, I, I wouldn't go that far. That sounds really, <laughs> that sounds really arrogant. <laughs> 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 but but no, I'll be honest. There are some underwriters were respected more than others, and I'm sure you would have done the same in your day. Yeah, no, no, you're right. So twenty
1: years, uh, twenty years then of what's, what's been QB and how did how did that develop?
0: Um, you know, how did you get to be you know where you are today? So I started with Peter Grove, as I say, in 2000. Um, I was the deputy retro underwriter at the time. Um, Two years later, I became the deputy syndicate underwriter. And then Peter Grove uh, moved on to director of underwriting, so could no longer be the active underwriter, in 2004. And I took over as the active underwriter.
1: So you've done about 39 years, uh, of which quite a lot is reinsurance, uh, on both sides of the box, uh, in all, many different classes as well. So, I mean, how much has reinsurance changed in that time?
0: Um, the, big, the big difference is the number of clients, the number of contracts, and the size of lines. So I remember when I was broking, gosh, in the, in the old room in the, in the early 80s, you know, you were running around for a twenty thousand dollar line here, thirty thousand dollar line there, uh, and you literally had hundreds and hundreds of of layers and programs to place. Now, because of the reduction in, particularly Lloyd's syndicates, all of the M and A, you know, it's far fewer client base and much bigger programs placed uh, and much bigger lines. I remember; I think it was probably mid nineties when. On retrocession business, which I was broking, uh, Transatlantic wrote a million dollar line and and everyone was going balmy about it. They couldn't believe someone could write a line that big. Um, But it was obviously leading the way to go. What's the point of writing a thousand, hundred thousand dollar lines when you could write a hundred million dollar lines?
1: So, John, why are you retiring if you don't have any work to do now? You just press a button and you renew three contracts and you can go home
0: for the rest of the year. Is that right? So this time next year I will have done 40 years in the business uh, and I've never had a, a gardening leave, I've never had sabbatical or anything. So um, I did say when I was asked about succession about three years ago, I said when I've done 40 years, I think I've I've probably done my bit.
1: Yeah, but I suppose actually back to a more serious point about um,
0: now going to a low volume of
1: much higher um, higher premium volume um contracts presumably that just means that the work that goes into putting that what 15 20 million dollar line or more um is just much greater is that is that the point it's it's now it's you're spending weeks analyzing what's your what your price is what you want and then when though when you're happy you can finally put the big line down and, and that's the way it goes is that the way is that the difference between what what reinsurance used to be you know an aggregation of 50 small lines and yeah, now being yeah. 5 big
0: ones. So you have far more time to, as you say do the work, do the technical work necessary to do those bigger lines uh, and because the client base is much reduced, you get far more time to talk to the individual clients and actually have a genuine relationship with those clients. When
1: you have less clients, does it mean that you kind of got Hobson's Choice? though? So, b- b- before, if you had 200 clients, you could, pick, you could try and pick the best 40 and write them well, probably you didn't have time to know which were the best forty. But now, if there's only ten clients, can you really afford to
0: telling them to go away? It's tougher. It's tougher, and we'll we'll be finding that out in the next few weeks as we come up to particularly the Japanese renewal season. Yeah,
1: actually, I'm, I'm going to get get get. The, we'll get to that um, at, at some point in the interview, I think, because you know it'd be good to have some specifics out of you, particularly given all of your experience. Um, but it'd be good to ask, sort of, you know, what were the toughest times? Um, in, in while you were broking and underwriting reinsurance in the last 40 years what were the most difficult times I mean, so we've been through a hell of a lot of there were, yeah, we, we always talk about different crises or capacity crunches or
0: what was the time that you found the hardest uh, i'd say probably the most difficult was on the broking side the late 80s early 90s so we had um, hurricane hugo uh in 89 and then we had 90 a d g which were all european windstorm losses uh uh, obviously early in 1990 Um, then there was a funny enough a large um, japanese typhoon in 91 Mirai and then hurricane and andrew took the biscuit in 92 and was the biggest insured cat loss ever so at that time lloyd syndicates were disappearing clients were disappearing um, and it was really, really tough on the broking side. We probably went through four or five years of having to cut costs and, and let people go, which makes it a difficult environment for, for everyone.
1: And because, because there wasn't the market for you to place
0: into? And the client base as well. The client base reduced and also the market reduced as well. Do you think there's any similarities around now? I mean, certainly there was a good article in the Insurance Insider from
1: uh, uh, about broking, uh brokers saying actually London's there's less of a market in London so whilst prices are going up that's great but actually um, my brokerage account is not swelling uh, like I would love it to because actually there are less places to place business Is is that do you think that's that's fair
0: I think that's I think that's a bit negative for myself I mean there is with particularly on the direct and facultative property side a lot more business coming into the London market I think brokers should earn the salt they've got more opportunities now and look everyone's got to be careful and make sure we do our best to make a profit especially with the Lloyd's Dessart 10 and everything else going on um, but I think if, if you're a decent broker in this day and age you should be excited about getting the opportunity on more business uh, and finding markets to place it with. And what were the best times? Um as I say when I was at a very small broking company Steelborough Jones um placing a bit of everything you know right what are we going to do this week let's do a bit of satellite or a bit of bloodstock or something like that and it was great um I really I really I really enjoyed that side on the broking um and and going back to the worst times obviously on the underwriting side uh, is losses it's it's absolutely losses so almost a year to the day I'd been uh, on the underwriting side. Uh, 9-11 happened, um, which was you know, a massive loss for the whole market. And for us as reinsurers, we had a substantial property book and a personal accident book and uh, aviation book as well. So that was a difficult time. And then again in 2005, probably with Katrina, Rita, Wilmer, um, the, the US Hurricanes on the back of 2004, Charlie Francis, Ivan Jean, um you know that was that was difficult times but then you look back on it afterwards and there was such great opportunity and you enjoyed it in 2006 and 2007 um it didn't feel that good because for instance 2006 we really really needed a good year uh which thankfully we got but uh, i celebrated properly at the the 31st of december that that year absolutely
1: um do you think there's anything um and the way that work has uh, the, 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 the work has changed obviously it's evolved hugely um, it's much more analytical much more sort of deep thought going into things but also but is there anything from the old days that you miss um, that you wish could come back or something have we lost anything or, or just want to ask you now you've got that 40 year perspective
0: I, th- I think the um, uh, one of the things I didn't enjoy at the time was queuing up um, because you could queue literally a whole day for a lead underwriter li- like Dick Althwaite for instance um, and it still scarred me to this day I'm not very good at queuing up at airports or queuing up at the bank or anywhere um, and I'm sure that's because of that but having said that I still think there is a huge advantage to face-to-face uh, broking and underwriting you get immediate response uh, I know it's more technical and the more analysis go- analysis sorry goes into it um, but when you get this two hundred page submission, if a broker can just spend fifteen minutes with you talking through the salient points and the major changes, that can save us hours and hours and improve our service. Do you
1: think? Um, I suppose now there's a lot of technology that's that's sort of about that, that might sort of um, enhance some of that and get you know actually find those salient points in the two hundred page document. That yeah, you're yeah, absolutely. I,
0: I agree with that. But I, I still think there's an advantage to to face to face. You can look into the whites of the broker's eyes and vice versa. Um, you know, If you get an offer just sent on email, you've no idea when you're going to get an answer as a broker. Um, but if you actually go along and see the underwriter and discuss it, you can get a, generally a pretty quick answer, a pretty good feel of whether they're likely to be interested in the risk or not.
1: And presumably that also gives you a feel for what the, the actual and um, what other underwriters are going to think. Uh, at the same time in terms of um, you know yes, we'll get to know yeah. those people yes
0: you get some feedback from the brokers to who's looking at it and what other underwriter's opinions might be but do you think that's ever going to get lost um that face-to-face element or because of
1: now with all the technology actually it's just going to enhance that it just means that when you get to the box all the technical stuff's going to have been done and now you're going to get more to the sort of Let's say the f- spiritual side of it, or the cool of the yeah. art side of underwriting, the art side
0: of it, yeah, which is it's very important. And yeah. still, you, you're still a firm
1: believer that, that the art side of it is never going to go.
0: Absolutely, and uh, part of that is going back to picking your clients and who you think are the most likely. Everyone says they're they're going to buy long term and they want a relationship, and you know damn well that probably over half of them aren't telling the truth. Um, so if you can really work it out and who the clients who genuinely want. A long-term relationship, and will stick with you after losses. Then, then that's important.
1: I suppose that's a good way of um, sort of uh, you know moving into talking about. Uh, you, you mentioned Japan. Um, that's that's what's on our, on your table, and that right now, I presume. And I don't know if they've got if there, anyway, uh, firm orders and other things, or at least that there's terms out there. I'm sure you've been asked to quote and indicate and do all sorts of things. Um, um, and obviously, a Japanese market generally, one would say, is a, a very a good. Re- probably the biggest believer in terms of uh, believing in long-term relationships as a buyer absolutely uh, a buyer yeah, yeah. And, and and you think that's 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 not going to change but what you know what do you think is going to happen uh, and what do you think should happen at, at, uh,
0: at the first of april obviously we've got we've had a lot of losses well what we think should happen and we've shared that with our japanese clients and the brokers as well is that on pricing side we should start again for wind coverage the models have clearly been proven to be incorrect the uh, pricing has been incorrect Uh, and we're saying we should start again just simplistically look at 20 year burning cost and the increased frequency you know whether it's climate change or whatever it is but there has been a, a, a huge increase in frequency in in typhoon losses unfortunately what i think the danger of happening is uh, and one particularly of the large reinsurers had said they 're looking at a percentage increase and and we don 't think that's that 's right because whether it 's fifty percent one hundred percent two hundred percent, what we're saying is last year pricing was clearly wrong so let 's let 's start again.
1: And how much work have you done on starting again to, to fundamentally reappraise what, uh, what, the, what the risk is on the wind side?
0: Well, to be honest, we've done pretty simplistic stuff, which is, as I say, just looking at recent years' burning cost. And, you know, I know, obviously, the last couple of years have been very, very difficult. But even if you put that over 20-year burning cost, the, the pricing would be substantially higher than it's currently paying.
1: Yeah, I mean, is is that really fair though, John? I've got to be got to well. Bit, Twenty a years is a specific. long time, isn't it? <laughs> well, I don't know. We had, you know, after KRW, you know, everyone was looking to 2006 and think, well, this is normal now. You know, we've had we've had the four four you know we had the multiple landfall four, four landfalls in 2004 yeah. and okay. Ivan and all these other things, and and then we've had KRW in in 2005. Or clearly, 2006, 2007, it's going to be forever. And in fact, you even had those adjustments in, in 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 the models in terms of uh, you know a kind of uh, frequency adjustment. Uh, and then fast forward and then you have no losses for what, fourteen years is that is that
0: particular, is, it, is it just uh, opportunistic but mark we, we needed as I said in <laughs> in two thousand and six we needed no losses um, otherwise you know none of the market would have been around much thereafter um, I mean that was a difficult period of time because although in hindsight you look back and you think you 're getting great rates, what we did was um, we basically guaranteed our capacity to existing clients and then would have a different pricing because we had limited capacity for for anyone new. I said it was a bit like EasyJet seats. You know, we sell the first 50 at 50 quid, the second 50 at 100 quid, and I'm down to my last six seats. So I made that very clear to people, you know, we've got very little capacity left and we're going to have to get top dollar for it. Does anyone listening, I suppose,
1: if you're listening in the States or around the world, EasyJet's one of those budget airlines, which I'm sure you've got locally, but it might be the equivalent of JetBlue or something like that. Yeah. yeah, Dynamic pricing.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, And what about more generally, um, reinsurance generally, uh, the way it's differentiating itself uh, within the global pricing structure? We've had this um, general hardening uh, of the the US market and the... the, um, Uh, increased flow into the excess and surplus lines and the London insurance wholesale insurance market and specialty insurance market Um, have you been disappointed at all by the way that reinsurance seems to have been immune to that
0: yes (laughs) I mean I think our reinsurance market is we said after the losses in 17 when everyone was thinking pricing's going to go up drastically we thought right what's we, we're a leader in the market we'll help lead the market what should we be saying and we start off saying do we say pricing non-loss impacted generally should go up 10% and just sit back and think well hold on a minute um, some some markets have been a lot better than others so uh, for instance the French market were very aggressive in getting price reductions in 14, 15, 16 and into 1, 1 17, and the German and Swiss markets weren't so aggressive, so what our policy at the time was to to get back two years of price reductions, so we just get back to where we were at 1116. and we shared that with the market, and were one hundred percent and totally unsuccessful in selling that, <laughs> because um, unfortunately the rest of the market and excess capacity was still there, and were generally happy to renew non-loss impacted business um, at the same pricing.
1: What point do you, if you can't, if you can't achieve those objectives, even if they seem perfectly reasonable to you, what point do you walk away?
0: We have we have walked away from business uh, over the last five years. Was we saw pricing reductions, particularly somewhere like Florida. Um, you know they were getting reductions, fifteen percent year on year, um, for, from p- probably two thousand twelve onwards. Uh, and and we substantially reduced our exposure to florida we're we're very underweight there Um, potentially there's an opportunity to pick some of it back up at um first of june this year but what
1: what would have to happen for that to would something really have to crack and and uh, you know you're talking about what big big price increase
0: yeah yeah absolutely so you hear the major writers people like kevin o'donnell saying you know there has to be substantial increase and you know what is substantial, we'll find out. But you know, I would sort, I would have thought twenty points plus um, with all the lost deterioration we've seen in Florida over the last couple of years.
1: Um, I wonder. You 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 know, you really know about retro, which is I don't know. Perhaps journalists obsess about it because it's such a nice, opaque, and sort of small, and sort of we always like to think of it as being this sort of great elite sort of part of the, of, of of the world. And perhaps it gets probably gets more attention than it really deserves. But you're a real expert. So, I mean, do you think? There have been some stories in the press about you know whether retro would wag the reinsurance the retro tail would wag the reinsurance dog. Does it ever really work like that?
0: It absolutely did in the late eighties and early nineties. Very much so. The retro. Is that because of because people were reliant on retro? Yes. Yeah. 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 And when there were more Lloyd syndicates and they were very very reliant on retro. exactly as you hint at the issue now is some of the big reinsurers out there really aren't as reliant uh as smaller companies smaller Lloyd syndicates have been in the past so the answer to
1: the question would be um do you think um that now that we're less reliant on on retro it won't have such a big effect uh
0: probably not as big as in the after um hurricane andrew but uh, I, i still think it'll have a an impact you know you saw um Uh, who was it Uh, vibe syndicate pulled out of treaty property treaty uh, before um, they got pulled the plug completely um, but they just worked out the mass didn't make sense to buy a retro program which they needed and the pricing not increasing substantially on the inwards for insurance book just couldn't make the numbers work so
1: yeah, so for someone who does need retro, it's a, it's a massive deal, so it's about reliance. And if it's not, then it's just a question, is it just a question of re- resizing your book? And you buy less retro, so you sell less for insurance, but you charge more for it, you retain more. Is that how it works?
0: Yeah, but people these days in particular have got to be careful as to how much more they can retain. The other interesting part of that equation is that um, I didn't, only relatively recently found out how prevalent our competitors buying quota share on um, on their cat book was. Um, you know, you hear a very large London operation who had 75% quota share on the, on their cat book. And with the reduction in appetite from uh, funds and ILS vehicles, um, you know, these have been reducing. So it'll be interesting to see whether that will have an impact on pricing because of the reduced capacity.
1: Well, that, that's good, actually. That brings me on to my next point, because perhaps that, you know we've had you know three years of difficult losses, particularly in property cat. And um, so that's a big part of the reinsurance story uh, has been how that's affected the ILS market, which prior to that had been increasing its share and increasing its share year after year, So particularly between say 2012 and 2017. Uh, and that was the story before. So... You know, we've had trapped capital. We've had um, some losses. We've had unexpected losses, and we've had we've had a prominent failure also in that in that space. So, what do you think? Has that shown up the limitations of ILS, or do you think long term is that just a speed bump? And we look back and say, actually, ILS is still on its way to global dominance.
0: Global dominance is pushing it, I think. <laughs> but um, there's definitely a place for for alternative capital. Uh, it has been very useful uh, and will continue to be so. Uh, I just think uh, if I think the bigger established funds are there and will be there for a very long time and a real addition to the market I think some of these people who came in on a smaller basis thinking you know cat reinsurance is easy money it's a free lunch um, those people are disappearing will disappear you never know who the investors are um, there's a faceless investor they've got no interest in continuity I don't think there'll be so much time for them but for as I say the larger established funds uh, I think there definitely is a place in the market for that Do,
1: you know you, it's interesting you, you talking about your surprise that some of your you know some of the some of your peers in the market have been using a lot more of this capital um, is, is it just right though that you know, do you feel like you missed out? Uh, you should have. When there's cheap cheap capital in the market, should you not just go and use it and then pass the benefits on to your, to your ultimate customers?
0: I'd, I'd, I'd be very reticent about presenting to potential capital investors and telling them that 2015, 16, 17 were really good times to be investing in catastrophe reinsurance. I mean, I don't know whether people crossed their fingers behind their back when they were doing it, but. Uh, you know we've we've used uh, alternative capital in the past and actually we find it more useful in the harder market because that's when your clients need the additional capacity and if you can access additional capacity through funds that's that's giving more of a benefit i think to your client base right okay um lots going on in the world of insurance
1: of the sort of interaction between insurance and technology we've had this tech phenomenon over the same period, this three-year period that we've been talking about. Um, you know, um, we've had we've a lot of catastrophes and things, but but tech's really come come a long way, and there's a lot of well-funded startups. And actually, what's interesting, uh, a lot of startups focusing on reinsurance actually and trying to build marketplaces. Um, we know that they've, these things have happened before, but these are probably better funded, and the, maybe the technology, maybe the time is right I don't know I want to ask you that but do you think um reinsurance is ever going to be something that might become a fully traded commodity that exchange traded commodity in fact or the bits of it might
0: bits of it I think see, that's just what I was going to say there are elements um but you know the most simplistic derivative is an ILW sorry insured loss warranty so it's based on the um, total market loss uh and we've seen platforms trying to set up over the last few years to make that a tra- traded commodity but even that hasn't really taken off um i don't i don't see ever that the whole reinsurance industry will move to a commodity based approach but there might be some elements um, as you say catastrophe reinsurance is is a likely one of those
1: um and what about things like um sort of tradable insurance indices and derivatives do you think they've got that they're going to be part of the of a long term
0: future for insurance. I I still think that's a fair way down the line. As I said, there hasn't been any real success for platforms on something as simple as an insured loss warranty. So more complex derivatives, I think, will be a
1: few years off. So what what would you need to to, to be comfortable buying one or selling buying or selling on one of those marketplaces?
0: Well, you've got to be comfortable, but the the platform is robust your counterparty is robust Um, this is the problem I have with these potential platforms is that you don't know who your counterparty is and I, I don't feel comfortable with that what does it matter As
1: if it's exchange traded and it has that benefit of a chain of security? And it's obviously it's not an over the counter thing, in which guess you would know who your counterparty is, but uh, through an exchange that you feel is, you know, light in the way like Lloyds, it, it does have a central fund. It has a chain of security. Surely should be more comfortable, and it doesn't matter who who the counterparty is.
0: Uh, you, st- I still seen it, and you still have a willingness to pay argument. It's not just ability to pay; it's willingness to pay. Well, I suppose, but again, that's why the platform would have to be completely above the willingness. Exactly.
1: No, absolutely. I think the willingness has to be built into the platform. Uh, Otherwise, uh, particularly if it's something that's fairly binary anyway, it's kind of like, did it hit it? A bit like an insured loss warranty. You're talking about um, something, it's a binary thing. Did it hit, was the loss more than 10 billion or not? Uh, Yes, no uh, type thing.
0: Yeah. And then you'd have to post collateral i think so then there would be no credit risk i think that would that would be the answer okay yeah so in fact it might as well go over the counter anyway effectively
1: (laughs) right okay and it's and is it liquidity and and all the kind of transparency that that, does that worry you as well sort of that you know and also the credit that you get do you is it really important is it particularly important for you to get the credit you need to get that capital credit for having bought something
0: if people are going to buy derivatives for a substantial amount of protection, absolutely, you need the credit. You know whether it's we've got half a dozen regulators. You know you've got to keep them all happy. Whether it's Lloyds, okay. whether it's PRA, whether it's the Australian regular APRA,
1: and and uh, you know and the rating agencies as well themselves. Yes,
0: yeah, yeah, absolutely.
1: So there's a long way to go, is what I can. What can what I, can I think it's a bit down the line. That's yeah. your, your, in, your instinct. Okay, well we're talking about um, futurology. Um, you know, Lloyd's, a marketplace of which you've been an integral part for all of your career, um, is in a particular phase of you know modernisation. Uh, it's called uh, you know uh, the Future at Lloyd's program, and the first blueprints have have come out. So, you know, as a reinsurance man, um, what would your top priorities be uh, out of all of that?
0: I I think the um, the expense the, the true challenge on expense is is an important thing i think anything we can do to reduce the excessive burden of regulation is important Um, i think john neil Neil said or indicated that you know what is the point of um, lloyds doing an awful lot of regulation uh, on lloyd's entities when exactly the same thing's being done by the pra as well so if they can find a way to stop that duplication, I think I think that'll be extremely good. Um, as I say, expense is an important thing. Um, I I do question. Uh, I see the logic to it because it's trying to attack expense, but the uh, the lead follow um, issue. I think it's, that's going to be so tough. I don't know how it's going to be implemented, because no one is going to put their hand up and say, oh, I'm just a follower, I'm just a follower. Well, um, well, there's the beastly
1: Beasley's got a venture, which is very specifically trying to be that, yes. to be a sort of exchange-traded fund, uh, in a sort of low-cost
0: fund uh, tracking but, but I don't know how the size of it now what is it 100 million or something but you know relative to the whole market it's, it's no, out of 33 billion it's not yeah.
1: <laughs> it's not it's not, not be, but you've got to start somewhere yeah absolutely absolutely. Um, but then having said that um, how long do you think you can have a market where you've got 10 players on a slip and they all have to behave as if they were able to lead that business and invest in all the capabilities and analytics and underwriting prowess you know the expensive expensive stuff and expensive people to be able to perfectly well lead that business even if they're actually just the last five percent filling the
0: order and and is that part of the expense problem itself though i think I, i i'm not sure it is i mean i think i wouldn't be prepared to expose my company's capital uh without doing full due diligence and technical pricing and and analytics on on the business that i was going to expose that capital to um i think changing tack but a lot of the expense ratio issue is because so much of the business written in lloyds now is through mgas um i mean i really see the irony when i started in the early 80s in nearly every submission we had particularly from the states uh, in the first paragraph, it would say we are no longer supporting MGAs because uh, the results were so awful in the late 70s and early 80s. And now the pendulum swung the other way. And I think, Mark, you know, might know better than me, but is it something like 40% of the Lloyd's business is comes through MGAs?
1: Yeah, I suppose so. But then that, that is a different – it's different business. That it, I suppose, um, the, to be fair to them, those people would say that that's business, that's retail business, that's sort of business that you'd never see and it wouldn't be feasible uh, to bring into London in any other way so if you've got to look upon that perhaps more like a proportional treaty with a with a you know a consumer facing insurer.
0: But if you're happy to take an awful lot of that business into the into the market your expense ratio is going to be pushing 40%. Yeah
1: but I suppose to your fundamental your fundamental answer to that question is frankly you can't get around this problem with um, due diligence if you expose capital you have to be diligent and that costs money yeah yeah you need the expertise so you, you just need to focus on trying to be smarter but do it
0: cheaper somehow uh, and do you think technology might be the way? It will help definitely it will help um and 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 I think we ought to stand up as a marketplace a bit more to the to the regulators as well because so much of our increase in expenses over the last few years has been because of the increase and increase of regulation and, and it's very difficult to see to what benefit. The clients or the market or anyone
1: well, I, I can certainly attest to that because actually oddly enough it's um, sometimes supposed to it's slightly ridiculous uh, uh, I chaired lots of different meetings with senior where senior executives are presented with with people from around the world and uh, we got, had a very senior regulator in we had uh, lots of heads CEOs CUOs, anyway the c-suite of the London market in a room uh, with the regulator and I hoped Uh, that we would have a proper discussion and of course um, no one asked any difficult questions so it was down to me to do that. Oh, it's,
0: it's Just you and me, then, Mark. By the sound of it, because <laughs> every well, six all these months in the I room have a here catch are far up. too polite. They, they, <laughs> yeah.
1: they seem to be too scared to actually. Even though you're in a room and we've got the microphone switched off, they're still too scared to, to, to actually be more robust. But do you think we're doing a better job than we were before? At least now we've got things like the LMG, uh, this, that's the London Market Group, which is a, a kind of supra trade body uh, above, uh, you know, the, the the Lloyd's Capital, the brokers, and and the company market and Lloyd's of London itself. It is getting heard in government. Do you think the UK government?
0: Yeah, and, and the ABI I've seen firsthand as well. I think you've got to give them credit as That's well these, because they do yeah. stand up for to, to the regulators. And
1: That's the Association of British yeah. Insurers, which includes the life industry and things, and life and pensions world as well. Um, right. Um, what about brokers? I mean, we're talking about expense. Obviously, it, it, it's a very large um, line on your uh, expense ratio is the acquisition cost ratio. In reinsurance particularly, uh, you know it, it's consolidated uh, beyond measure uh, that with with just down to three really big reinsurance brokers and some lots of very small ones. Do they have too much of a stranglehold, stranglehold on, 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 on reinsurance?
0: So I remember when um, Aon bought Benfield uh, and I think that took their share up to north of 50% for the London market reinsurance business uh, and Dominic Christian uh, phoned me up at the time and and said, uh, "Oh, you know, what do you think?" I said, "Look, I'll be honest. If I was setting up a new business plan, a b- business model, I wouldn't want 40% of my business coming from one intermediary." And he said, "Oh, is it only 40? Most people are more than 50." And I said, "Well, it might be, but I'm not going to tell you that. So, um, it's it, it's difficult. That's not the ideal scenario." Um, but you know the bigger issue now with is there's a huge amount of smoke going around, so you think there must be some fire somewhere um, on the other other one where I think they were going to come out. What was it? You're not talking about Aaron and Willis, are you? Could I? I can possibly be. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so w- what are you saying? Do you, do you, you think it's not ideal? Uh, is what you're saying?
0: No, but we have we do have good relationships with them. We haven't seen it deteriorate. Um, I would worry more if literally 80% of London market reinsurance business was controlled by two brokers. I think we'll be all right for the next few years because the market is hardening. Things are um, getting a bit better. It's coming more in the underwriters favour. But then the next soft cycle, um, they'd have a huge amount of control. And There you'd be sort of talking about you know massive schemes, sort of like Aon client
1: treaties, sort of Mark II and sort of Son of, which could be very big.
0: Where, where we've done well on the um, on the reinsurance side is generally it's on non-proportional business, it's ten percent brokerage, and we've stuck to our guns on that. Um, there's been more pressure on the insurance side for to get additional fees, you know, whether it's through facilities or just additional fees. Full stop. But we've done very well as a as a market holding the line and saying we're not paying more than ten percent brokerage. Um, I would worry, as I say, if the market starts softening and eighty percent of it's controlled by two entities, um, that we, you know, we be f- have pressure to to increase commission.
1: You're, 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 you're obviously a market man and you must believe in, I presume you believe in, in the power of financial markets and comp- free competition um, but do you think that the market would evolve uh, you know, if, if we did consolidate down to just two massive players, do you think the market would have the ability to, you know the, the competitive nature of the market would mean that actually those two players would actually lose market share to the point where you'd build up the third and the fourth and a fifth player perhaps that would challenge them?
0: I, I think that's the, as you say, economics. That's the obvious result. But, I just but, think it'll take a while.
1: But would you, or do you have to, or is there a point where actually there is a, a kind of winner takes all element, and, and you have to have a Standard Oil kind of situation where the Rockefellers have to be sort of, you know, it has to be broken up forcibly, or the Microsoft kind of Internet Explorer thing
0: that happened uh, with with, with the dawn of the of the World Wide Web. Um, I'm not sure I can equate it to that, but the the difference is in the old days when these mega mergers were happening, you'd often find breakaways and groups of individuals getting together and setting up their own firm or under another umbrella. Um, and that's just tougher and tougher and tougher to do. So I, I think it would take time.
1: Well, um, it, on that on that note, we've, we've had um, um, Marshall McLennan companies buying uh, JLT and that JLT re-was the fourth Small, smallish, relatively small challenger, but the fourth largest uh, reinsurance broker. But it has that has crystallised quite a lot of ambition among? Uh, it seems to be the catalyst for some of, of the other brokers who've wanted to get into reinsurance to to, to have a go. Have you seen any impact from that? Um, we don't have to name the names, but it, it does. Has that helped the competitive dynamic? Um, that there's some really quite large and reasonably well well funded businesses, uh, big businesses that weren't in reinsurance. At, seen this as their chance to to have a go and have, have you seen any any kind of uh, effect from that
0: um, we've seen one in particular i'm thinking of who have taken a fair few people from the old jlt re uh, are putting in a massive investment so you'd hope if they continue to back it up by money um, we have seen some business that has moved uh, already uh, and i think yeah that's part of the natural cycle that um you know as the bigger get bigger and stronger there's more room for challenges to to enter the space so it's not so you're reasonably optimistic is what i'd say uh i think we're lucky in as much as we're moving into an improving hardening market if if this was happening in the real softest part of the soft cycle i'd be more concerned
1: okay um what advice are you going to give to your successor
0: now that you're, you know, you're close to stepping down? Don't mess it up. Um, so he, you know, we've had a, a good franchise. We've kept together with client relationships for ever since the syndicate's been going, in particular for um, nearly fifty years, um, and and it's important to do that. And don't be under keep your underwriting discipline don't be under pressure everyone's under pressure to grow all the time and as i say at this point in the cycle hopefully we have got opportunities to grow but don't do it just for the sake of it
1: That's good and what are, and what are the what are the real key challenges for reinsurers right now
0: um as we touched on a second ago the the broker issue is uh is a big one um the uh, the, the clients, the, the issues we have with clients, you think you have a good relationship and then they have a change of management uh, and then that you might have 10 or 20 years of, of good relationship gone out the window. So it is just trying to keep us close to understand your client, to show you're adding value, it's not just a commodity and and provide service. Um, so we try our best to do. I always tell my underwriters, I think it's important that, you just be as transparent as you can with your client base and the brokers. Um, if you're not going to ride a risk, tell them why not, because there's nothing more frustrating from the broking side as someone just declines a risk without giving you good reason.
1: John, I've known you for quite a long time uh, as t- in my time as a journalist. I didn't know you as a broker. Um, um, I it's to deal with other sides of, of, of limit then. Um, but I've, In the time I've known you, you've always kept this great sort of good sense of humour, perspective... What's the secret to that?
0: I'm very lucky. I'm just born a a glass-half-full man. So uh, I remember going to my annual medical a couple of years ago, and you fill in the forms, and they ask you this, that, and the other, basically to try and work out whether you're stressed or or potentially suffer from depression. And it was a lady doctor, and she went through them all and said... um, God, this is this is fantastic. You know, you're you're a real optimist. I said, well, that's, that's how I was born, and she said, that's great um, because that rubs off on other people. So when we go through difficult times, whether it be nine eleven, whether it be Katrina, Rita, Wilma, um, you know, everyone doesn't want a boss who's panicking. So if you've got a boss who can keep keep level and, as you say, keep a sense of humour, uh, it's much easier to get through the tough times.
1: Um, what are your plans now, uh, your uh, retirement? No, no one ever seems to retire in this business. Um, so I, I want to see. You know, I'm, I'm glad I'm face to face with you. I seen that you smiled there, John. So are you? Are you going to construct a, a, a series of non-executive relationships, all that kind of thing, directorships?
0: I, I, I'll be honest I really haven't thought about it um, the only thing I have promised uh, my wife is that I won't do 24-7 anymore so um, I'd to keep a toe in the interest to keep your ear to the ground what's happening you know I would definitely um, look at opportunities going forward um, my hobby is horse racing my brother-in-law is a racehorse trainer at Newmarket uh, I'll definitely spend some more time with Stuart doing that um, but yeah I'd be always you've got to find you can't be in an industry for 40 years and just walk away um so I, i'll definitely at, at worst be coming up for lunch every every now and then uh, at least rather coming up for lunch every now and then and meeting some old friends and fa- found out what's happening in the market
1: sounds, if you're really into horse racing it sounds like you, you'll be back at work uh before we know <laughs> i'll be in six months shirt, <laughs> or you'll be coming to syndicate or you'll be coming around to syndicate ownership of, of interesting uh, Geldings and fillies and whatever
0: that that, that are available it's in the incredible. new market, uh, there, market. There are a lot of people from the Lloyd's market involved in it who enjoy it, and um, it, it's you know it's nice to get away and do something completely different.
1: It's difficult to ask now because you don't know until you're the other side. But what do you think you're going to miss about um, your your old job when you when you're retired?
0: Um, it's I won't miss the um, governance and regulatory and compliance and all those aspects. As I say, I think it's just pendulum swung too far that way um i um it's the people it's the people it's the um, camaraderie it's the uh, with your colleagues but also your clients uh, and and the trading there's you know it's good fun trading it's uh um will they, be the bits i think i miss most
1: i realize there's something i forgot to ask you before i ask you uh, anything that uh, you, you think we should have touched on that we haven't um a bit more specifics on on um We've, we've mentioned the Japan renewals, but what's going to happen? What do you think is going to happen in Florida? And perhaps you know, big question is that those big casualty renewals uh, that are coming up, which will come up in mid-year. Um, we've been seeing so much action in the, in the uh, casualty market, uh, again, about reserving and other things. I just want to know your view on sort of where you think that's going to go.
0: So Florida I touched on earlier and I think there will be substantial rate increase because everyone's just had enough of the the, and that's the
1: underlying risk itself is being has, exactly. it has changed yeah. yeah exactly
0: exactly and and people realize that and when you get people like Kevin O'Donnell saying that openly in the press and I think Frank Majors has said as well um, you know you must uh, you'd hope that you get the whole market you know saying hold on we've got to change the, the way we've rated this business in the past on the casualty side um yeah, I reckon there's going to be a fair bit of uh, bad news come through for the next 18 months, two years on uh, U.S. professional lines in particular. Um, they're definitely getting substantial rate on the uh, on the original business. Uh, I think we as reinsurers don't give the insurers enough credit for actually doing the work on the front end. You know, we're always first at a market. Uh, to um, to knock the insurers our client base and saying they're not getting the right premium they're not getting the right terms but actually now both on the casualty side and and the dnf property side in particular um, you know they are getting substantial rate and substantial improvement in terms so that is something that we can piggyback off the back of uh, and, and hopefully things will will improve whether on the casualty renewals how much of that mid-year business will become unbundled or reduce seeds or the like i think it'll start to happen but to what degree i just don't know and uh but on the non-proportional side is it something you can really take a lead on uh we're definitely underweight and it's something we've got a watching brief on the difficulty is especially for u.s professional lines um One's going to read nothing other than bad news for the next year and a half, I think. So to try and persuade your management that now's a really good time to go into U.S. professional lines is uh, it's tough. But we've we've opened those conversations. You have to. This is this is
1: you know, this is how why Warren Buffett is richer than everybody else, there isn't it? Surely you've got to you've got to explain them that. Get your timing right, exactly,
0: and, and get your timing right. you've got to jump on at the right time and jump off at the right time. So. Good, well good well good good luck with the jumping
1: um is there anything that um, uh, we've had a good long discussion anything you, you think we should have touched on that we haven't
0: I think you've um, you've covered an awful lot Um No, no, Mark, and I'm I'm not
1: going to ask you about coronavirus because I don't think it's fair. I think it's bigger than all of us. I'm not an expert. My
0: wife's an expert. (laughs) She keeps on (laughs) on telling me about it. It's going to get worse.
1: (laughs) Good. Well, I did uh, sanitize on the way in, so I'll sanitize on the way out as well. So please. Good. Well, thanks so much, John. It's been a real pleasure talking to you over over many years of my career, and I really enjoyed this conversation we've just had. So thank you, Mark. Thanks. Voice of Insurance is produced by me. Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com.